Amen. I don't really even have to preach after that song. Amen. Like, that was so good. That is such a powerful, powerful song. Um, but I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, my, for those who don't know me, my name is Alan Michael. Uh, I do children's and young adult ministry here at Grace. Um, and I absolutely love what I do. We are going to continue in the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, that's where we find ourselves. This has been one of the best sermon series that I've heard. The book of Ephesians is so powerful. And I've been so thankful to go through uh, this book. Uh, last week, Jerry uh, started in chapter 4 talking about the, the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, and then uh, Wednesday night, Adrian preached about the new life uh, that has been given to us. And as we cross into chapter 4 of Ephesians, uh, the first three chapters of Ephesians were about what God has done. And now that we're in past that, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we see what God is doing through his people. And that's, what, that's where we are uh, this morning. And so in chapter 5 specifically, God, or, or Paul gives instructions on how to walk in the Christian life. He specifically uses the term walk here. Uh, walking is something that living things do. They walk. And so we are to walk in this way as well. But walking is simple. There, there's a time in your life where you had to learn how to walk. My son Christian is a year and a half, and I remember when he uh, took his first step. But I remember more specifically when he took his first two steps, where he took more than one step. I remember we were at Jerry's house. We were in his kitchen, and Christian took two steps, and then he sat down. And I got so excited. I was like, yes, my kid can now officially walk. He took two steps, right? So I stood him back up and was like, do it again. And he did it again, fell down. And I was like, I can't even like, like express how excited I feel. So I stood him back up, two more steps. I'm just overjoyed at this point. Stand him back up. He immediately sits down. I was like, no. So I pick him up and I, I can't make this up. I pick him up, and as I'm sitting him down onto the floor, he just curls his legs, doesn't even stand for it. He's just like, nope. You see, his legs got tired. I wore him out. When you are learning how to walk, your legs have to get adjusted. It takes time. For those of us who've been walking for many years, it's easy for us. But at one time, it was not easy for us to walk. Our muscles had to be trained. Our our brain had to be able to control our legs and our impulses and our reflexes. All that had to have practice. And it is no different in the Christian life to walk in such a way that for years, for years, we practice and practice and practice. And so that's what Paul is getting at in teaching us to walk. He gives three main instructions in this passage. The first instruction that Paul gives is to walk in love like Christ. Walk in love like Christ. If we read in verse 1, we see the, pretty much the measure of what the rest of this chapter is going to be about. In verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. So right out of the gate, this is the highest standard that we are to reach. 
And so as Paul, or as Adrian preached this past Wednesday about the new life that we are, there's the things that we are to put away and there's this new life that we are to put on, it is wrapped around this standard, be imitators of God. That is a high standard, if you ask me. Extremely high. And so that sets the precedence for everything that we see here in this chapter. So how do we imitate God as his beloved children? That's how we do it. If you're a parent in this room, at some point in your child's life, they begin to imitate what you say and what you do. And sometimes as a parent, you're really proud of that. And there are other times it scares you to death. Right? Yes, as children imitate their parents in words and in deeds, so we are to imitate God, our Father, because we are His beloved children. And so what He says next, show us how to do that. Verse 2, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. See, this is the love that Christ displayed. It's important to know specifically how Jesus loved us in terms of what comes after this. He was a fragrant offering to God. The word fragrant literally means sweet aroma. That his love and the way he loved, his sacrificial love, was a pleasing sweet aroma to the Father. You all have smelled things before that remind you of some event or some time in your life. One, probably one of my favorite smells is when we're coming out of winter and you smell freshly cut grass for the first time. You know that spring is coming. And for those who truly walk in the Lord, that it's almost baseball season. Amen? That, that is where you land. You recognize this smell and it's a sweet aroma to you. Christ's love was a fragrant, sweet aroma offering to God the Father because of how he loved. His love specifically was self-sacrificial. Every aspect of what it says here, he loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Everything about Christ's love that is explained here is self-sacrificial. Everything he did, everything he said, and everything he thought was for the glory of God. And there was no sacrifice worthy enough to be that sweet aroma for God other than Jesus. It was him. So he moves into verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is one of those passages that can easily be brought out of context when you're not fully aware of everything that is surrounding what it is saying. If we were to define sexual morality, it would be anything outside of the biblical view of marriage. Impurity is a lapse in morality or impure thoughts, covetousness, greed, a need for more. 
These were common sins among the Ephesians, for the, the, the main deity in which they worshipped in Ephesus was the, was the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. These sins specifically were very prominent in this area because of the goddess in which they served. But he said, it's not this way for you. It's not proper among the saints. The word proper in the Greek literally means fit. It doesn't fit you. It's not meant for you. This is not how it is to be. These sins should not even be present so seriously that we don't even joke about them. That is the level in which you are to take it. But he doesn't stop there about this serious issue. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is a serious statement. It's hard to swallow because of the gravity in which these words hold. Notice the present tense of this passage, that they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why is it this way? He is contrasting Jesus' love with these sins. Jesus' love was self-sacrificial. These sins are not. They are self-gratifying. They are self-seeking. And they are self-centered. Paul is contrasting these two extreme views of love. Jesus and his sacrifice versus these sins which are nothing more than self-centered. This is not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is a righteous kingdom and any unrighteousness will be excluded. For those who are in this camp, the only inheritance they will receive is what they seek and get here on earth. But please understand with this, there is a clear dividing line. This passage says specifically for those who are sexually immoral, impure, or who are covetous. It does not say for those who have struggled with these sins or maybe today are struggling. Please know that if you are struggling or have struggled and you have prayed, prayer God, please remove this from me. And it is a struggle in your flesh to this day. Please understand that grace is given and forgiveness is given to those who truly seek repentance. You see, those who are Those who are sexually immoral do not seek repentance. Those who are impure do not seek forgiveness. And those who are, who are covetous do not seek God. Their identity is consumed by these sins. Those who walk in love like Christ will have the sweet smell of Christ. Those who walk in love of self will have 
the aroma of sin. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You see, Jesus is the clear standard. He is the, the fragrant offering that was given as sacrificially to God. But 2 Corinthians, Paul also says that we are the aroma of Christ to those who are saved and to those who are not. And so I ask this morning, what scent are you giving off? Is it one of a fragrant offering as Jesus, or is it one that is consumed in sin? Moving down to verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You're probably thinking, man, this is such an encouraging passage. No, it's thick because it's real. This is God's word. In this time, Gnostics were telling them that you can be as immoral as you want to be because your soul will not be harmed by your actions. But that is not what the word of God says. For the word of God says your soul is at stake. This is heavy. But we've, we've seen this in culture today. You can be as immoral as you want. You can be as impure as you want. You can be greedy and want as much as you want. God, as much as you want. Because it's all about you. Your soul will be fine. This is not what the Word of God says. Therefore, do not be deceived. That's what Paul says. This is a mindset that rationalizes sin to indulge in an ungodly lifestyle. You see, we are to walk like Christ as he walked to the cross on our behalf. The second instruction that Paul gives is to walk in light as children. We we'll start in verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, do not be partners with them. He's referring to this word partakers of the sons of disobedience. Now, this word partners is used in the Greek twice in all scripture. Both times are in the book of Ephesians when he says in, in chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he's contrasting this idea of being partakers of Jesus in his divine promise versus being partakers of the sons of disobedience. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. It doesn't say you were in darkness. He says at one time you were 
darkness consumed you. It was within you completely. You exuded everything that was absolute darkness. But now you are light. Thanks be to God. You are now light. You went from being darkness to be consumed fully in light. Now walk in that light. What does that look like? Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This represents, first of all, good. Goodness in itself represents our relationship with others. What is right represents our relationship with God. And what is true, personal integrity. That's what Paul is getting at here when he says this is what the fruit of light looks like. And this represents all things, relationship with others, relationship with God, and your personal integrity, your total self. John MacArthur says this, Without, their fruit, without that fruit, there is no evidence of the life of God. Walking in light is difficult. Darkness has to be exposed in order for there to be light. Many are afraid of the light because of what it could expose in our hearts, in our lives. But Paul says that anything done in without this fruit of light is taking part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So if you are in here and you live in the darkness, then you hate the light. You hate it because of what it does. It exposes. Like when you've been sitting in a dark room for too long and you go out into a sunny day and you can't open your eyes, right? Because, because the light is so blinding. And so you have to wait for time for your eyes to adjust, to get used to the light. But here's the thing. The Christian life isn't about adjusting to the light. It's about enjoying the light. We are to enjoy the light. And if you are in darkness, if you are living in this place, not allowing light to expose the darkness within you, then you won't enjoy the light. You will not. When we are exposed, the Holy Spirit changes us from darkness into light. It doesn't help us adjust to the light. It takes us from darkness into light. I'll keep reading. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. You see, at the point of conversion for us, everything is changed. And when that true transformation occurs in us, then we begin to enjoy the light. Let me give you an example. So I, there's not many foods that I don't like, but there is one in particular that I cannot stand and is a clear product of the fall, and that is, that's olives. 
Olives are disgusting. I know some of y'all are probably like, I love olives. My wife loves olives. I don't understand. But no, olives are disgusting. And, um, but if you were to sit here and tell me and say, Alan Michael, you have to love olives. You have to, you have to eat olives in order to be doing what is right. Okay, well, I'll eat those olives. And I'll hold my nose the entire time I do it. And I will force myself to swallow. You will laugh at my pain. And how it'll be. No. In order to eat the olives, my entire palate has to change. Everything that's here has to be completely different. Not just so I'm forcing myself to swallow, but so that I'm enjoying the olives as I am eating them. And let me say that the Christian life is that way. It's not something that you just force upon yourself. No, you, everything within you has to change in order to enjoy it. And let me say, there are probably people in this room who are holding their nose, fighting to swallow just being in here today. Because you're not enjoying it. Because you're in darkness. Paul doesn't say to do these things and your, your heart will no longer be darkened. Verse 14b, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Church, who is it that shines on us? It's Christ. He shines on us. He removes the darkness from us. It is his transformational work on the cross. It is his self-sacrificial love that he took the cross all the way to Calvary, was hung on that cross to die for our sins, a punishment that we deserved, destroying the power of darkness in the process so that we could walk in light as his beloved children. That's the love we're supposed to walk in, in that light. And I pray that if you're in here this morning and you do not know Jesus and your heart has not been transformed by, by the, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you do not leave here this morning without allowing the Holy Spirit to come in and transform you into a new creation. And if you're in here this morning and you are, you're struggling with sin, or maybe you don't realize there's sin, but you know something's off. I know this takes us off track just a little bit, but in Psalm 139, the very last two verses of Psalm 139 is a prayer that you can pray, and it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Find any grievous way within me. Let me warn you, praying that prayer He'll find it. Because oftentimes we can suppress it and not see it, which is why David in Psalm 139 was praying, search me and find it within me, God, to remove it out of me. Walk in the light. The third instruction that Paul gives here in Ephesians 5, to walk in wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 
making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says to walk in wisdom. There are three major ways he tells us to be wise in this passage. Make the best use of your time. Now, this passage is not necessarily saying every minute, every day. No, you have been given an allotted period of time in this, in this time span that God has given us. And he's saying over this allotted period of time, make the best use of your time. Now, in the span of eternity, our lives are but a blip on the radar for, for the magnitude of that it is. But it doesn't make it not important. He says to make the best use of your time. Because God's plan is still for the whole earth to know his name and worship him. And although we may have a short time, it doesn't make it any less important that that is our role as the church. So how do you, how do you make the best use of your time? Well, the second imperative, understand the Lord's will. Seems easy, doesn't it? No. There is his revealed will in Scripture, which is clearly given. We see it in Ephesians 5, but then there's his will every day that we are to be seeking it out. For many of you, it's choosing a job opportunity. Well, Galatians doesn't talk about what job you should take. But you are to seek the Lord's will every single day. John Stott even says this, Nothing is more important in life than to discover and do the will of God. Absolutely. Jesus prayed for God's will to be done. And he prayed and taught us to do the same. So we are to pray and seek the Lord's will. This is all helping us understand what it means to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The third imperative, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It seems kind of random that Paul would put this here. Like all of a sudden, he's just like, oh yeah, by the way, don't get drunk, but do this. Well, here's why. Because he's contrasting these two different ideas. Getting drunk is a way to lose self-control. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit given in Galatians chapter 5. And when you get drunk, you, you lose all self-control. It's reckless. It's immoral. It goes against the first two imperatives that Paul gives about being wise. Make the best use of your time and understand the Lord's will. But instead be filled with the Spirit. John Stott also says, Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we do not lose control, we gain it. So Paul is helping us understand that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the product of this? Verses 19 and 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be overflowing without of us, right? 
So I have to brag on my boy Adrian, uh, who's sitting right down here for a second. Adrian is our youth pastor here at Grace. And Adrian and I, our offices are right across the hall from each other, and our offices are upstairs. But everyone in the office knows when Adrian walks into the office because he's always singing at the top of his lungs. You could be in the middle of doing something extremely important. We could be counseling people. And Adrian comes walking through just singing, Oh, praise the name, at the top of his lungs. For his heart, I give him an A+. Plus. Execution, ah, uh, B-. minus. <laughs> just messing. But it is, what I love about Adrian, though, it is it's overflowing out of him. He, he's just, he's singing, he's worshiping at, at all times of the day. He's just, he, and he'll blurt it out even when he's sermon prepping. It's just overflowing without him. He's saying here, Paul, that this should be the melody of our heart. Not saying you have to walk into every building worship, singing worship songs, but that feeling of worshiping him should be overflowing within us. It should be written on our heart that it's all that we can do but to worship him, to sing to him, and to give thanks to him. That's what he is saying. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like, that it would be written on our hearts so that it's overflowing out of us. All of this in Ephesians 5 is showing us what it means to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now the word transformed, I want you to understand that the word transformed uh, has a deep root in the Greek. The Greek word for transformed is metamorphosis. And if you're looking at this word, it looks familiar. So we use the word metamorphosis to explain what happens to a caterpillar when it turns into a butterfly. A caterpillar, this small, brown, fuzzy, leaf-walking thing, gets into a cocoon. A few days later, emerges from the cocoon with these beautiful wings a brand new body and flies wherever it wants to go. It completely changes into something else. Do you know this is the word that's given for us? That we are constantly being transformed out of self-seeking sin into self-sacrificial love out of darkness into light. Out of being unwise, but being wise through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know what you hear today is, all right, well, I gotta do these things. I gotta do these things. I gotta do these things. The only power that can grow us is the Holy Spirit. I'm reading a book right now called The Discipline of Grace, and it's by Jerry Bridges, an amazing book, and it has just transformed my understanding of every little aspect of the gospel, and it's, it's timely that it's raining outside. We just, this past week, this big field up here behind the youth building, we, it has been tilled, we dropped seed on it, we put straw on it. But, of course, it hadn't rained in, like, a few months. So we're just praying, God, please bring the rain, or that's going to be for nothing. And he did. 
So if doing these disciplines, if reading scripture, if praying, if fasting, whatever your disciplines look like, whatever the spiritual disciplines look like for you, those are like you preparing the field. You're tilling the ground. You're spreading the seed. You're fertilizing it. But there's one thing that you cannot do to the seed. You cannot make the seed grow. You can prepare the environment. If it doesn't rain, you can still water it. But you can't change the seed itself. So with us, the only thing, the only person that can change us is the Holy Spirit. And it's transforming work. And it's a process. It takes a long time. In his book, he says, the verb being transformed is passive. That is, something is being done to us, not by us. I can to some degree change my conduct, but only he can change my heart. That's truth. It is because of this truth here at Grace, one of our core values is heart change that leads to life change. It is not the other way around. It is not life change that leads to heart change. It is, in fact, heart change that leads to life change, which means that within us there's a change that's occurring, and it comes out into us. It starts in our heart and comes out into our actions, our thoughts, our words. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would understand the transforming work of the power of the Holy Spirit, but also not be discouraged by your own Failure to change yourself. You don't have the power to change yourself. Only God. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. God, we praise you so much for your word that you've given to us today. God, we thank you for your transforming work 